I was approached this morning after first service by a well-intentioned young lady who had obviously a problem with God. She was not a believer, and we were reading the story this morning of Herod the Great, who because of hearing of the birth of Jesus Christ, decided in response and in reaction to that to secure his throne by killing any possible heir, all of the Hebrew children in Bethlehem. And she came up really in tears and she said, I noticed that you talk about the Christmas story so beautifully, but how come you guys never talk about these babies being killed? I said, well, we have talked about that. This is your first time. We can't talk about everything in 40 minutes. Nor can we talk about every aspect of the Christmas story, but we have dealt with that. And it sounds to me like the real issue that you're dealing with is... Why does God permit evil in the world? Said, That's right. It's exactly what, uh, what, what I'm asking. And uh, Why did that happen? Why They were innocent. Why did they die? There's so much evil in the world, she said. Where is God in times of evil? Why doesn't God do something about that? And she said it was over the birth of Jesus. Why couldn't He have stopped that? I said, hey, no, wait a minute. Don't blame Jesus. It was Herod. He was an idiot. And he was sinful. And don't blame God for Herod's idiotic sinfulness. Yeah, but God could have prevented it. Why didn't he? And so, I wanted tonight to sort of blend in Christmas with her question. You think, how can you do that? Christmas is such a happy time, but for a lot of people it's a miserable time. And with those who try to grapple with the question of why God... It's appropriate that we discuss this tonight. In the book of Job, Job has a question. And I've pondered this question many times. And it's interesting. Job has a, a, a very logical philosophy. And that is, there are many things that I don't know, but I'm not going to cash them in because there's many things I do know. In other words, there's a lot of things about God and about the universe and why things happen I can't give you an answer for, but there's enough things that I know the answer to that it's not worth for me to abandon my faith in God over the issues that I don't know when there are so many things that are concrete that I do know. And in Job chapter 23, we read, Job replied, even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy because of my groaning or in spite of my groaning, depending on what you're reading. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. This is a man in deep pain who's suffering. He's not asking a philosophic question regarding others. He is experiencing pain himself, saying, I, I wish I knew where to find God. I have a few words to talk to him about. I'm in pain. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. There is an upright man, or there an upright man could present his case before him. And I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. 
When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Now, I don't know where God is. I wish I could find him. I wish I could state my case before him. I don't know where to find him in this period of pain. But here's a few things Job does know. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. When this episode is all over with, something good will come out of it. I will be refined. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food or my daily bread. In 1984, the Gallup Poll Organization asked men and women all over America, if you could have a private audience with God and ask Him one question, what would it be? The top five questions were questions like, why is there evil in the world? Why are people so rotten to one another? Why do bad things happen to good people? When will evil stop? Questions like that. Many of the same questions that this young lady asked me today. Why would a loving God allow these things to happen? The inconsistency comes in this. We supposedly live in a world created by a benevolent, good creator. If so, how could there be the coexistence of evil? Now, if you have a conversation with anyone who's a non-believer for any length of time, this is going to surface. Eventually, there will be this question, where's God? Like Job asked here, where is God when I suffer? Because on one hand, the person hears the good news about God loving all people and sending Jesus to prove His love. But on the other hand, they hear CBN and NBC and KOB and all the other bad news stations that tell you the truth about the universe that you live in, the wicked, the evil. It's unfortunate, by the way, that it's the bad news that gets pressed. There's so much good news to broadcast. I'm not just speaking about the narrow Christian sense of the word, the gospel. But good things just don't make front page press. It's not readable. We want to hear about who murdered who and what economy has collapsed and what nation is overthrown. Nobody wants to read about good things in life. It's unfortunate, but it's true. And people who run the media know that. And so we hear those kind of press reports. But... First of all, those questions are not new. Philosophers and theologians have discussed over the years the same issue that she brought to me this morning. Why? Also, every single person probably has asked those questions. If you are a thinking person and if you use the gray matter between both of your ears, at some point in your life you will grapple with those questions. You must grapple with those questions. Because if you don't, when people ask you that honest question, you'll give a flaky answer. And so you need to grapple with those questions. Job did. There was a lot of things he didn't know, but there was a few things Job knew. And he wouldn't trade his relationship with God for a few things he didn't know. There are some things that can be explained scripturally. There are good answers to some of these questions. But there comes a point where we have to recognize we are limited and finite and we're dealing with an infinite God. And for us to understand all that is knowable would make us God. Thus, you'll never know it all in this life. There comes that point where you just have to resign 
and say, well, there's enough evidence stacked up over here that would cause me to trust in God with all of my heart. Though there are those inexplicable areas, I'm not going to be hung up on those areas. I'll trust God. So people have grappled with this question for generations. Secondly, it is ironic to me, sometimes to the point of humor, that while people grapple with the problem of evil, they neglect the problem of good. At any given time, there is more good and pleasure and happiness than there is unhappiness in our world. Why is it when we see a white sheet that we focus on the black smudge on it when there's so much white around it? Why is it when we go up to a rose bush that we just notice the thorns? Probably because it represents an abnormality from the norm. If somebody's singing a beautiful song, not missing a note, you will notice the first time their voice cracks and they sing a sour note. Why? Why will you notice that note? Because you're used to such harmony. You're used to such order that the moment that peak of chaos comes in, it throws you. When there is a public speaker giving a speech and he slurs a word or mispronounces something, you'll pick up on it. You'll notice it. Because you're used to symmetry. And so there has been the problem of evil, but there is also the problem of good that people overlook. In answering the questions... Why do these things happen? Why does God make allowances for it? People have explained it by a number of different explanations. Number one is the explanation of the atheist. Since there is evil, there is no God. There cannot be a good God coexisting in a universe that's filled with evil. Thus, there is no God. But if there is no God, well, first of all, if there is no God, we're toast. It's like in a Methodist church back in the East Coast. In one of the Sunday school classes, uh, Paul Harvey tells this story. You know Paul Harvey on the radio. That somebody went into the Sunday school class and they were praying, each of them, and one of the girls decided to write her prayers and said, God, please take care of Mommy and please take care of Daddy and please take care of my dog and my cat and my fish and my brothers and my sisters. Oh, and by the way, God... Please look after yourself because if something happens to you, we're all sunk. (laughs) Only a child could come up with that. How precious. But think for a moment, if there is no God, then you don't have a problem with evil. If there's no God, then there is no creator who establishes a value of what is good and evil. Any logical thinker will come up with that consensus. Bertrand Russell who won the Nobel Prize for his logic, said, if there is no God, there is no good and evil. You solve the problem. There is no problem. To be evil, there must be good. And where did the good come from? You have to answer that question. And secondly, there is the philosophy and the answer of the deist rather than the atheist. The deist says God exists and God is a creator But once God created what we see, He stepped back from His creation and He is not involved. He kind of went to the back porch to take a snooze and just is going to see what happens. A non-involved being who either is not involved because He wants to be uninvolved or He lacks the power to be involved. 
That was the philosophy of Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote a book that is raunchy in theology, but is popular among deists, and that is why good things happen to bad people. Basically, says, forgive God. He's trying the best he can. He's just out of control. Then there is the philosophy of the health and wealth faith churches who have made a heretical, and I don't use the word flippantly, but very deliberately, a heretical teaching which says there is evil in the world, but if you're a Christian, you're immune from it, and God only wants perfect health and prosperity for you. Thus, if you're experiencing anything bad, it's because you're not walking in faith. That creates only guilt And when reality sets in, they blind themselves to the reality. I've watched people with broken legs limping, saying, my leg isn't broken, praise God. Really? Then why are you limping, praise God? (laughs) And don't you go around telling people that God healed you, because unbelievers are going to think He does poor business. If you call that a healing, don't blame that on God. God can do a lot better than that. When He heals, you'll know it. You won't need a cast. God, where are you when I suffer? Why do you allow these things to happen? Of course, we need to go back to the beginning, and we won't trace it down, but way back in the beginning, God created a world that does not represent the world we see now. When you look around at this world, it is not what God intended. It is not at all what God intended. Sin has corrupted the human race. Man has made a choice to say, God, get lost. God honored that choice. And man has reaped consequences. God did not abandon man, as the deist would say. God became very involved, sent prophets, sent messengers, sent revelation, sent a means by way by which a man could come to know God. Eventually, God sent His only begotten Son to take pain and suffering and provide a way by faith that every creature could get to know God. In hopes in the future that God would set up a kingdom that would represent His intention, and one day He will. The world that will come won't resemble this world. You will see one day the kind of a world that God intended. Job in this chapter knows, though there is much that he cannot explain, he says, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold Verse 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. There's things I don't know, but I'm trusting his word more than my necessary food. Often I've had the question asked something like this. Where is God in Ethiopia? I brought that up to this young lady today. I say many people say, where was God in Ethiopia? She said, no, where is God in Ethiopia? Well, wait a minute. Before you start blaming God for Ethiopia, know that in America the best-selling book is on dieting. So before you blame God, let's look inward. Let's look at this country. Let's look at ourselves. The problem isn't that God has created this out-of-balance system. The problem is hoarding. Do you know that there's enough food on this planet to give every human being on this planet 3,000 calories a day? The problem is hoarding. It's not with God. It's the sinful heart of man that doesn't release. But it's easy to use God as a scapegoat. Where's God in Ethiopia? The most popular books are on dieting and now how to kill yourself. How to commit suicide. 
Because we're overweight and because there's so many problems and because we've got diseases, now we'll have the choice to just end our lives whenever we feel like it. God, how can you allow this to happen to Ethiopia? Hey, let's look at our own backyard, folks. And let us esteem the words of His mouth more than our necessary food. If your child, God forbid, would get run over by a drunk, are you going to blame God? I blame the drunk. I blame the country that allowed him to get away with it. I blame the sinful heart of man and I go way back to Adam and Eve and then to the devil himself. There was first of all a super being who fell from God, who desired to take in people by his lies and enamorment in following his philosophy. And it has worked. I blame him. And then I would blame the choices of man for the problems that I see. Oh, but there's so much cancer. You know, because of the sinfulness of man, we have brought a lot of the problems on ourselves. The strain of the human being, the specimen becomes poorer each generation. I am convinced Adam and Eve, if we could see him today in his original state, was like the superior, ultimate human being. But because of marriage and disease and intermarriage and dispersion and all sorts of things that we have corrupted ourselves with over the generations, we are a poor specimen nowadays. Plus, look at our nutrition. We eat garbage that has been processed. And because of that, there are natural consequences. We get diseases from it. Alcoholism, people smoke, you get diseases from that. Okay, well, what about the things that we aren't responsible for? What about natural disasters? The insurance company calls them acts of God. What about being born into a situation that you have no control over? What if you're the baby of somebody who has AIDS and you have AIDS? You're not responsible for that. But it can be traced back to somebody's responsibility. But there are, I admit it, victims. There are people who innocently have suffered over the years. And we're not responsible for it. The disciples asked that question. And I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Or you don't have to turn to it. I'll just read it in chapter 13 of Luke. Let me read it to you. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. He didn't even get into the philosophical discussion of why. He just said, because something happened to them, doesn't mean that they don't have faith. <laughs> or that they're worse sinners than someone else. That's really not the issue. The issue is unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. The issue isn't the physical as much as the spiritual. He goes on and elaborates. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. We have been born into a world that is chaotic by nature. It is unfair by nature. Well, if God is so powerful, and like you said, Skip, if there is a devil, 
And there is the sinful heart of man. Can't God control that? Can't God have a control on His leash? Why does God permit Satan to have reign and permit men to do evil things? Now listen carefully. For love to be love, it requires the foundation of volition. In other words, people need to be able to make a choice. Satan has been permitted certain leeway even in the influencing of mankind, so as to permit the exercise of free will. Love, to be genuine love, must choose to love. You can't say, I will force you to love me. That's oppression, not love. There's no volition involved. You're doing it because of consequence, not because of right motivations. If people came with push buttons on the back of their neck, And I could go to my wife whenever I wanted to hear her say, I love you. Let's say I felt a little lonely and I wanted true love. And so I walked to my wife and I put my arm around her and I tripped the switch. And when I pushed the button, her neck goes, I love you. Would I feel warmed inside and satisfied by that? Well... If I had a low IQ, perhaps. But I could program my Macintosh computer with the little microphone that comes with it to say that. And it doesn't do much for me. But when she freely says, I love you, unsolicited, she's made a choice. That's true love. It's not forced. It's not pushed. And so... In this universe where God exists, created man with free choice, knowing the outcome that man would follow the rebellious one who seeks to influence people. He also knew that one day he would have on his side a sufficient amount of people won over to him by his love who have made that choice. Instead of proving that he can win by brute force, and he could have wiped the devil out and wiped Adam and Eve out and wiped all the children of Israel out when they made the golden calf and destroyed all the world, even Noah, but he didn't. We mistake the patience of God for God not caring. The deist who says God created and then went out to the back porch is wrongly interpreting the patience of God. God loves so much He is long-suffering. It means God has a long fuse. We can't relate to that because we don't have one. We can't relate when Jesus said, you will forgive someone 70 times 7. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Once, twice, maybe three times, but even in baseball you're out after that. But 70 times 7. Wow, 490 times. In other words, unlimited. We can't conceive of that because he's speaking in language of God that transcends human experience. Then there are things that are natural laws. For instance, somebody would say, well, what about the hurricanes that destroy people? Let's blame that on God. But you can thank God, first of all, that there are hurricanes because that's the earth's natural way of releasing pent-up energy and heat as heat builds up in the south by the equator and needs to move north and dispense of that energy, a hurricane is created. Now we need to watch and see if there's unusual storms and move out of those centers, but it's something that is created not to cause damage, but to be a blessing to us who live on the earth. But we can make choices and get in trouble 
by being in the wrong place. And even if you're a Christian, are you immune? No. If you think you are, you're in for some rude awakenings. Jesus said, the sun shines on the just and the unjust alike. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Now out in California, there are faults. It's not my fault. It's their fault. They've decided to build homes where these Teutonic plates meet at the San Andreas Fault and it's just a time bomb waiting to happen. Now, I didn't leave Southern California because I was afraid of earthquakes. I figure if it's my time, it's my time. That's one way to go. But eventually, eventually, from what we know of science, that thing's going to break big time. And when it does, millions of people will be killed. They've heard it, they know about it, but they choose to still live there. And if I was back there, I'd have to live with that as well. That's the way the earth shifts and also releases energy. And that can be a blessing too. But you have to be aware of it and adjust accordingly. But don't blame God because of that. Also know this, there will come a time when God will intervene and what you see now will not be the way it will be. You know, God said, is there anything too hard for me? I'm the Lord of all flesh. And he made this promise in the book of Revelation. God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, sorrow, crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Tonight, this is one of the messages. We need to accept suffering without necessarily resigning to it, railing over and play dead. And moreover, as Christians... I'm challenging all of us to become ambassadors of God's love in a world that has sold itself and its rights to the devil and is experiencing evil because of natural consequences, because of sinful consequences. Instead of shaking your fist at God, extend your hand to somebody who is suffering. God gave you the choice. You have hands. You can... Hug someone with it. You can lend to someone. You can give to someone. Or you can take a gun and pull the trigger. God's given you a mind. You can devise ways to get back at people or you can devise ways to help them. You can mouth off at the evil in the world and you can shake your fist and say, it's a horrible thing, by golly. Or you can do something about it. You can gripe about Ethiopia or you can help get the gospel out and get men changed so that those things don't happen and there can be inequity. Don't blame God. This is a time at Christmas when as the body of Christ we ought to look around even within our own ranks, our own body, to those who are unloved and feel lonely. There's a lot, a lot of you out there that you feel beat up. You want someone to hug you and love you. And it's a time to be God's light in a dark world. God's ambassador of love in a world that only knows hate. Make a difference. You can figure it out and theologize and philosophize till you're blue in the face or you get a degree in college. But you will have done no good until you extend your hand in the name of Jesus to be His ambassador of love. I have left this next 12 minutes to read you a story that has become, along these lines, one of my favorite. It's post-dated uh, 1982, December. 
If you've been around the church at least three or four years, you've heard this story three to four years ago. It's the last time I shared it. If you're newer than that, uh, it will be news to you. It goes like this. Young Pastor Torgensen resplendent in the new three-piece suit, charcoal gray, that his wife had given him, especially for this Christmas Eve service, mounted the platform. An ocean of faces looked back at him, the faces of the Red Ridge Community Church, holiday excited and ruddy from the cold outside. The pastor smiled for a second at his wife, who beamed from the first row and then began. He said, Before the choir sings our first anthem, Angels We Have Heard on High, let me remind you of a scripture passage about angels. Turn with me to Hebrews 13.2, if you will. You don't have to do that. This is what he's saying. (laughs) A tissue-thin shuffle of Bible pages went through the sanctuary like rushing wind. Then it stopped as the pastor was about to read Hebrews 13.2, A murmur rose in the rear pews near the door. We're used to that. To the consternation of several older members, a shocking pair of visitors had entered. The man was tall, blonde, bushy-bearded, a near-skeleton in a grimy navy pea coat. The girl was very, very, very pregnant. Swathed in a shapeless beige peasant dress and tattered sweater, a kerchief failed to conceal her stringy black hair. Wonder if they're married, whispered a woman in the back row. I never saw the like not in this church, grumbled a a man. From her usual seat, old Mizzy Everett just squinted at the strangers, apparently as confused as she ever was. Pastor Torgensen paused, smelling trouble. Another battle of the old and the new, he sighed to himself. Some of those older folks in the back look ready to throw their hymn books at this young couple. And there are some high schoolers on the other side probably wanting to bean the elders back. Will it ever end? Welcome, he finally called out to the bedraggled strangers. We're glad you're here. Come on in and sit right down. But it was easier said than done. The young couple had to wind their way to the front to find the only vacant seats. A few hundred curious eyes watched. Now, as I was saying, the young preacher continued, Hebrews 13:2. <clears throat> he cleared his throat. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He gulped, surprised at the verse's sudden aptness. Well, um, perhaps you've read stories about Christmas visitations by angels. Many of them have been written pure fiction. But let's remember tonight that our Lord Himself was not recognized for who He was and Let us make sure that there is room in our inn tonight. A nod to the choir, and he sat down by the pulpit. The music billowed behind him. He tried not to stare at the young couple, but he couldn't help it. Who were they? Why were they here? All at once it hit him. On Christmas Eve, a bearded young man and a pregnant young woman seeking shelter. Did they have a donkey parked outside too? (laughs) He smiled to himself. Angels unawares. Well, one never knew. The choir's last Gloria in excelsis Deo faded and the pastor jumped to his feet. He had an idea. In our bulletin, the order of service calls next for a pastoral prayer, but before I lead us, let us find out what we have to pray about on this Christmas Eve. Jack, he motioned to an usher, if you'll get that movable microphone, we can have a brief time of sharing our needs. 
Again, the pastor tried not to gaze at the young strangers, but hoped that they would share their obvious needs. After all, this was a unique chance for the church to show hospitality, he thought. Just a brief time, he repeated, unconsciously nodding at old Mizzy Everett in the back. (laughs) Poor old Mizzy, they called her. She loved sharing times. At the first click of the microphone, she'd jump up as quickly as her arthritis would allow, only to ramble on and on about some long-forgotten event or person. The whole congregation would look at the floor, embarrassed as Mizzy tied to remember a Bible verse or sing a song in a rusty squeal of a voice. It was starting to put a damper on the services, some people said. The pastor's hope rose as the bearded young man started to get to his feet. But Mizzy was up first, and she took the microphone from the reluctant usher. An almost audible groan went up from the congregation. Thank you, Mizzy, the pastor said after one minute of the old woman's rambling, but she droned on. I wish she'd take a hint, the pastor thought. Poor old Mizzy, her mind starting to go, and she still pedals that old three-wheeled bicycle all over town, making a spectacle of herself. Even the older members shook their heads about it. Finally, she surrendered the microphone. We'll be sure to pray about that, Mizzy, the pastor said, and then looked to the young couple. This time, the skinny fellow made it all the way to his feet. I, I, I don't know anything about talking in church or nothing, he said shakily. But my old lady here, he indicated the girl at his side, I mean, uh, my wife and I really need a place to stay tonight. We saw the lights and we came in. The pastor watched the young man speak, touched by his need. Well, we're glad you did, the pastor said, and I'm sure that we can find a place for you to stay. By the way, what's your name? The young man looked away shyly. I'm Joe. And this is Mary. A startled murmur was heard. Joseph and Mary, the pastor said incredulously. Yeah, I know how it sounds, the young man said, growing red-faced, but it's true, really. The pastor couldn't hold back a chuckle of wonderment. Indeed it is, he said, as he quoted Hebrews 13:2 again, angels unawares. Inspired, he thanked the young man and prayed fervently for the young couple's needs. The families gathered together and the weary world's longing for peace on earth. There was no doubt about it. The choir sounded sweeter than ever that night. The ancient story from Luke was never better read or more poignant. Even the atmosphere seemed rarer, closer to heaven with the young couple sitting up there in the front. When the time had come for the benediction, Pastor Torgerson looked out on the Christmas Eve faces and spoke right from his heart. Let there be room in our end tonight, he said. Let us reach out to the Lord of Christmas and to one another. May we, or we may be different from one another, but because he came, we can be one. Well, downstairs, where the church ladies prepared punch, coffee, and cookies, the congregation streamed in for a bit of fellowship. The pastor and his wife brought cups of coffee to the young man and his uh, wife, only to discover that several parishioners had already done the same. We'll be happy to have you stay at our house tonight, Joe and Mary, volunteered a middle-aged couple. Well, I was going to say the same thing, said another. A group of high schoolers brought cookies and punch to the strangers. Pastor Torgensen, smiling broadly, hugged his wife. Now, over in the corner by the coffee percolator, old Mizzy Everett sat alone with both of her hands around a cup of coffee. She squinted the sea of people 
seemingly confused by the noise. Then suddenly she put down her cup and looked at her watch. As if on schedule, she picked up her purse and made her way to the door along the crowd's edge. Nobody noticed her leave. The night was cold. Setting her jaw determinedly, Mizzy struggled against her arthritis to mount her three-wheeled bicycle. So frail, these mortal bodies, she thought, dumping her purse in the bike's basket. Her legs strained, pumping the pedals. Ice puddles cracked under her wheels all the way out of town. The city limit sign flashed past. Wheezing, she knew that she could go no further. Slowly, she parked by the side of the road. The highway was deserted. Only the stars in heaven watched as she climbed the sloping field by the road, her breath coming in hoarse gasps. A dog barked in the distance. Christmas Eve, she thought, looking at the sky. Just like that first Christmas Eve when she had sung with the others. Oh, but that had been easy compared to this assignment. This time she had to take on a body for such a long time. Not like the Sodom and Gomorrah visit or the rest. She stretched and she felt a pain. It was good to be going home. Smiling, she closed her eyes and reached heavenward. Slowly, the creases in her face vanished and the twisted hands unfurled. Going home, she thought. Brighter and brighter, her face glowed. Her old coat transformed into the robe, the color of the sun. It was an angel's robe. At last, she thought, at last. There was a silent flash in the night, and Mizzy Everett was gone. Oh, all of those unnoticed ones that are among us. We think of those that have the obvious needs in the shelters around the city, but there are those who are in our midst that are neglected. And at Christmas, it is a time where we remember God's greatest gift to the world, which inspires us to give of ourselves to those right here in this room, the Mizzy Everett's the ones who go unnoticed, the ones who rub a little bit because of their personality or their characteristics or just the way they are, their appearance or whatever. But angels unaware, 